0: We have been this week in uh, the middle of camp, so there was like 130 kids here or so throughout the week, uh, and I had the pleasure of spending all morning with the kids and the volunteers, just like places just full of joy and energy and noise and chaos, and it was really, really fun. And then in the afternoons, sort of brain shift to whatever else is happening in our church and getting ready for Sunday. And I have set with what has felt to be a pretty intense tension between those two spaces. Because we are in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And today's passage, I'm going to read it for you. Uh, it's from Matthew chapter 5. It is on, well it seems like it would be on uh, lust, adultery, and divorce. Great, great topics for Father's Day. <laughs> Why do you laugh? What? Let me read the text to you and then we're gonna, we're gonna jump in because we've got a lot of ground to cover. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But, but I say to you, anyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. For your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members in the whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better to you to lose one of your members, then the whole body, to go into hell. Then the next part. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the reading for the day. Thanks be to God. So it seems like today the topics on the table are lust and divorce. And I've heard like a ton, a ton of sermons on these two topics. And they always sort of come from a very specific direction. What it normally feels like is the conversation around lust in the church is one of private sin. So like what you do at two in the morning when you can't sleep and the Internet's on, right? That kind of conversation that's not what we're going to talk about today. There, there are some important things to talk about within what it means to have desire run rampant. But that's actually less what this text is about. Lust and divorce are ways of talking about a couple of other things that are in view. And I'll just tell you now where we're going. We're going to talk about violence and we're going to talk about vulnerability and destitution. Because that's actually what these two ideas point toward. Later, some of these chairs up at the front are going to make sense. But for now, I want you to be able to see them. It's a very stately chair. With lions on it. And what looks to be some kind of demon in the middle. I don't know. I don't know what it means. Lust and violence, divorce, and destitution. But first, we need some background. And you know this background, but I'm going to remind you of it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. The Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. And it goes through creation. God speaks, and creation answers. In that speaking is our speaking of humanity into existence. And it says... God creates humanity, male and female, He creates them. In God's image, we are created. And there is this sort of level playing field. Now there is this assumption that the way that we find the world right now is the way that God intended it to be. Especially when we start to look at like power dynamics and hierarchies. But, this is how things started where humanity existed in this kind of relationship of, of mutuality, where there wasn't sort of this person here and this person here. But things veer off course, right? And so you start to have this separation. You can see this in, in early books of Genesis when we call it the curse, right? Where uh, the man and woman, they sort of veer off the track. They take and they eat what they're not supposed to. There's just one rule and they break that one rule. And so the consequences of that Are this separation, this alienation, and this power differential? Now, over time, it doesn't look like this. It starts to just, like, it keeps going. Now, if you just stepped into the world and you looked out and you thought, like, oh, look, All the guys are in charge of all of the ladies. That must be how God intended things to be because it feels so natural. What you are seeing in that instance is a product of our collective brokenness. This is not the way it's supposed to be. But because of this, what we would call like a patriarchal society where men are on top and women, children, or everyone else occupy a different class, a different sphere. This has resulted in and still results in all kinds of problems. Problems is like a really light word for what it's actually been like. So into that steps these words from Jesus. We're going to start with divorce, and we're going to work our way backwards to adultery, tease out a little bit of of what I'm talking about here. Okay? Here it is again. You've heard it said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give him our certificate of divorce. But I say to you, anyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. These passages are written to those who have power in that society at that time. Jesus is speaking into that power disparity. It's part of the reason that it seems like males are being addressed here. Now, this language, you've heard it said. By the way, this is the male seat. In case it wasn't clear, super important, a little bit higher and a little bit bigger. Right? Right? you have your Bible turn to Deuteronomy 24 I'll read it for you this you've heard it said whoever divorces his wife let him give her a certificate of divorce this is the you've heard it said section suppose a man enters into a marriage with a woman but she does not please him because he finds something objectionable about her side note If you've been married for any length of time, this has become a true face for you, right? Men or women, at some point, we will find something objectionable about the person who we are with. That we're really good at that, at finding fault with folks. So, if there comes a time when the woman does not please the man, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of the house... She then leaves the house and goes off to become another man's wife. Then suppose the second man dislikes her, writes her a bill of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. Or the second man who marries her dies... Her first husband who sent her away is not permitted to take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that would be abhorrent to the Lord, and you shall not bring guilt on the land of the Lord your God is giving you as a possession. This is a strange passage, and we don't have time to talk about everything that it means, but at least it means this. Don't treat women like yo-yos, because that was a problem at the time. You, if you were a guy, you sort of, women were they weren't people. What were they? They were property, right? It was a commodity. And so when you, when you think about a wife in that time, in that culture, you were thinking about something either in your asset column or in your liability column. And if the, if the female moved in the liability column, but then you've got to somehow correct the pro, right? This is not good. This is this reality... And then sort of how do you live within this broken reality? So Moses says, listen, you cannot just send women away and then if it pleases you, invite them back in and then send them away back and forth. It becomes this, well, this kind of yo-yo relationship. Cause here's what divorce is in this time if you're a woman. It's like a death sentence. At the time, and still in some places, the security and stability of the family rests solely with the head of the household. And everyone else in the household lives or dies based on the favor of the one with power. So if you are a wife, and this person decides that you have little or no more value to the family unit and you are sent away, you are deeply exposed without resources, without protection, without a roof over your head, without employment opportunities. So of course a woman would try to find another version of this that might offer her some stability, a second husband. Right? You can feel, though, the vulnerable state that anyone who is not in that chair occupies. So when Jesus comes along and talks about divorce, he's talking about this. Don't be flippant about how quickly you send someone away. Because in sending them away, you make them insanely vulnerable to the brokenness of the world. Part of what Jesus is saying is if you occupy a place of power, whether that power is given to you because you deserve it or because that's just how the world is right now, you have a responsibility to to wield it well. Part of the reason is because you might cause a situation of shame and dishonor through adultery. And we know that adultery is a problem because it just said it right before then. So then this section, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, whoever even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's a tough one. And then Jesus gets really, really hyperbolic, a little bit insane. <laughs> right? He's being ridiculous. To wake us up. Now there were people in Christian history who did actually like rip out their eye or self-castrate. And that's crazy. But there are different ways to interpret the second half of this passage. I'm not recommending that interpretation. The language of lust. It might sound like a private matter. Like you see someone who's lovely and you say like that person is lovely. You all are lovely. Right? Like that... That's not what this is talking about. The language for lust is a language of heat. Of It's actually a very similar l- word to anger. It has something to do with violence. If you look at another with this burning desire to consume, you've already committed a sin. That's what this language is. Now, at the time... This is what it meant to be a man or a woman. If you were a guy in Greco-Roman culture, you, there were like no rules when it came to sex. You sort of had free reign. There was no expectation on this character in that culture to be faithful. You could have your eyes anywhere. That's just how it was in Greece and Rome at the time. But only for, only for the male. There was this duty that the female remain loyal, that the wife not stray. So that's what Jesus is is speaking into here. Now, this, this is not an old reality. I was in high school, college, young adult, even now, when I'm still in spaces where men feel free to speak, assuming that they will not be held accountable for that speech, there are certain words applied to folks who are, promiscuous could be the word, who have engaged in physical intimacy with more than one person and it is a different title for guys and for ladies do you know the titles there's actually a book that goes by this name he's a stud she's a a slut and something like 49 other other unfair comparisons between men and women this is not a new or an old thing this is This is still happening even now. There is this expectation that women be chaste or pure. And there is just an expectation that guys are going to be guys, right? Like, we tried, but sometimes you mess up. And it looks like this, or it looks like the picture you just saw before it. So what does Jesus say? I'll read it again. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, whoever looks at a woman with heat or with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What Jesus is doing is saying that there is a mutual responsibility between these parties. It is not just the responsibility of the woman to remain faithful and loyal to the promises made. But it is the responsibility of both partners in the covenantal relationship to be loyal and faithful. And this at the time in that culture, in that context is radical. Now I do not recommend what I had to do this week which was take a deep dive into the manosphere. Do you know what the manosphere, you're shaking your head, do you know what this word is? This, who, who knows what this word means? Oh, goodness, that's an awful number of people. Okay, I'm just going to say a little bit about it. Because it is, a, it is a really clear connection between this sort of language of lust and consumption and violence. So incel is this community that sprung up mainly online and there are really weird connections between this community of incels, you're going to find out what that means in a minute, and the community of what you might call like alt-right or white supremacy and all of the really, really weird parts of the internet that nobody should ever go into, uh, they all are connected in strange ways. So incels are involuntary celibates. And what this is, is these are usually young men who cannot find a partner, an intimate partner, and they are so mad, like so mad about this. If you go and you read any of these forums, you will not be a better person for it. And I don't mean this in like a funny way. It's awful. And there are tens or hundreds of thousands of guys who identify with this community The guy who drove his bus through a crowd of people in Canada, this was part of his group. And that violent action was because he felt like he was not given what was due to him. Right? And if you can't, can't have or take, if you have this hunger to consume, that might turn them toward violence. Multiple shootings from these mass shootings that have happened have been related to this kind of community. One of the last guys that carried a gun into school shot a young girl for the explicit purpose that she turned him down for a date. So when Jesus steps in to this conversation and says, careful what you hunger and thirst for, Jesus knows where those emotions lead. Let me say this really clear it's not sinful to have a body. I've said before how difficult it seems to be to watch females grow up in church and be given the message over and over and over again that if there is lust present, it is their fault. And if for some reason some boy or some man takes advantage, that they were probably asking for it. I'm really sorry if you received that over the years of being in God's house. Women, that somehow you were the reason that tragedy was visited upon you. That is not what Jesus means when he says don't even lust. It is sinful to treat another body like your property. And that's, that is getting closer to the heart of what Jesus is actually saying. He says, don't even lust for a woman. I'm gonna tell you about two of David's sons. Two stories that illustrate what it is we're talking about. One of them is, is just like one of the worst stories in the Bible. And I figured I would tell you when it's not an all family Sunday, because every time the kids are present on the first Sunday of the month, I'm like, this would be the best time for us to talk about the most difficult part of the Bible. But not today, we're gonna do it when it's just us, okay? Comes out of 2 Samuel. Chapter 12. Actually, it's in chapter 13. If you are familiar with the books of samuel you will remember that they are the books that talk about the monarchy talk about the kings of israel and if you remember samuel in first samuel was very disturbed with the idea of a monarchy and his reason for being obsessed and disturbed by the idea of a monarchy is because god was supposed to be their king So God says to Samuel, like, don't be upset that that they have rejected you. Because they haven't actually rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me as their God or as their king. So listen, give them a king. Give them kings. And they can be like the other nations. But here's what's going to happen when they get their kings. Their kings are going to treat everything and everyone like property. They're going to take and take and take. Especially they will take children and spouses. As soon as you introduce the power differential, then those who occupy this seat, and if we're talking about king, like can we just jack the seat up to the ceiling and make it like 10 times as large, there's going to be a problem. And sure enough, King David, the poet warrior king, takes, sees, right, and burns But lust sees the woman bathing Bathsheba and takes her. It's the same language of possession, of ownership, of consumption. And it takes and spins his family story off in a direction. But what I want to talk about for a second is one of David's sons named Amnon. Amnon is the living worst, guys. Amnon is an incel to like the nth degree. Do you remember the story of Amnon and Tamar? It's not a story that we often hear sermons on. So Amnon is one of the sons of David. Tamar is one of the daughters of David. And Amnon sees Tamar. And Amnon sitting up in this chair and gets hungry. Right? Lust would be the word that we would use for such a situation. And he's super upset because it seems like he can't have what he wants. And so this other person comes in and says, like, here's the plan. There's a way that you can have Tamar. Pretend that you're sick. Go into your bedchambers. Ask for Tamar to bring you some food. Whenever she does, then you can do whatever it is you need to do, right? Because when you're in this chair, the rules are different. So that's what happens. Amnon pretends to be sick. Goes in his bedchambers. Says, I really would love for my sister Tamar to come bring me some food. And David says, Tamar, go bring your brother some food. Because again, women were not at that time in control of their bodies. Or where they placed their bodies or what were done to their bodies. So she goes in. And in... Bedroom at the time, there would have been like this this larger room. And then there would have been what would have been known as like a chamber. And that would have been the bed with maybe like sheets or drapery that would have covered it. And so it would have been proper for Tamar to go into the bedroom and maybe place some food somewhere near the bedchamber. But you don't like go into the bedchamber because that would be inappropriate. And Amnon says, send everybody out of the room except for Tamar. So everybody leaves the room at Tamar. This is an incredibly dangerous situation for Tamar. And he grabs her and she says no but no doesn't mean no back then just like it seems like no doesn't mean no now takes hold of her and says to her come lie with me my sister she answers him no my brother don't force me for such a thing is not done in Israel do not do anything so vile And then this line, as for me, Tamar says, where could I carry my shame? As for you, you would be like one of the fools of Israel. Therefore, I beg you, speak to the king, and the king won't withhold me from you. Tamar is saying, like, listen, there's at least like a more honorable way to do this thing. If you're going to be that hungry and out of control, at least be patient for a little bit so there can be some honor attached to the act. That's not what Amnon's about. But he didn't listen. And being stronger. Forced her. Then this thing happens to Amnon. It says he has seized himself. With a great loathing. With anger and with violence. And as much as he loved her before he hates her now. Because that's actually what lust is like. It regards the other person, not as a person, but as property, as a commodity. So he sends her away. The story doesn't get better, guys. It's just a terrible story. And it sends David's family off reeling for the rest of their story. That, that, that's Jesus' family. Family. So when he says, it's not just about adultery, friends. Don't even look at a woman with lust. This is in the background. Lust might lead to violence. And Tamar is incredibly exposed now and shamed now. And the kind of violence that can be done to her has been increased exponentially. But David has another son. Known as Joshua. Or the way that that gets translated in the Bible is Jesus. The son of David. There's this other story. It's told in the fourth gospel. The fourth story of Jesus' life. Gospel of John. Chapter 8. So Jesus is teaching in the temple. All the people come out and sit down and he begins to teach them. But then the religious leaders at the time... They brought a woman who'd been caught in adultery and making her stand before all of them said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Side note, what? What were they doing? It's really tough to catch somebody in the actual act of committing adultery. I don't know if you've tried. I don't try that very often. But I imagine it's pretty difficult to do. (laughs) Now in the law, Moses commands us to stone such a woman, the religious leaders say. Now what do you say? you've heard it said as in days of old. But I say to you, Now, they said this to test him so they could have some kind of charge to bring against him. But Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the ground. It says this is a very strange text all the way around. Write something down in the ground. And they're all questioning Jesus, asking him all kinds of things. I have no idea what he wrote in the ground, but I have some guesses. And then he stands up. He says, let any of you who's without sin throw the first stone. Right. We know this language. We know this story quite well. Then he bends back down and he writes in the ground some more. Now, there are some manuscripts, your Bible may not have this section in it, but there are some older manuscripts that say that what Jesus was writing that second time were all of the indiscretions that those religious leaders had committed over time. I like to think that the first time Jesus bent down to write in the ground, he wrote all their names, which they probably were very flattered by. They're like, wow, this guy knows our names. We must be really well-known in the area, pretty popular guys, right? So he writes all their names. He stands up. He says, like, whoever's without sin, cast the first stone. Then he goes and he sees, like, you know, Bartholomew and Kelvin and, and Barry, and he writes next to them the things that they've done, which is awkward at best. And the text says, They heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders. So at least bonus to those who spend a little longer in life and realize that they are in the wrong. My assumption is like the older teenagers are the last to leave. Jesus left alone with the woman, standing before him, straightens up, says to her, where are all of them? Has no one condemned you? The language for condemnation is, has anyone found you guilty? No one, sir. Jesus said, neither do I find you guilty. Now go and don't sin anymore. The Torah, which is known as the law, those first five books of the Hebrew scriptures of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, That section is the core of Judaism. It becomes the core of the law and commandments that Jesus steps into this tradition of. And when Jesus is interpreting Torah, he's trying to point the law towards its good end. But there are all kinds of ways to use scripture. When we show up here on Sundays or when we open our Bibles at home during the week, we have to do so with a certain amount of reverence and trepidation because there are all kinds of ways to use this book for healing and for violence. I believe that might be the reason that Jesus calls it a double-edged sword. And the religious leaders at the time had lost the plot. The law had become for them a bludgeon, a weapon. Later in Matthew's gospel, they're talking about divorce, and the religious leaders, they come up to Jesus. This is a great picture. They come up to Jesus, and they ask him a question. By the way, if you're Jesus, you must be exhausted with questions, right? Because every time someone asks you a question, it's to trip you up so that they can kill you. I would be super nervous if every time one of you asked me a question it was so that I would make a mistake in the answer so that you could fire me. That would be awful. Please don't do that. (laughs) Some Pharisees came to him, some religious leaders, and tested him and asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? That's intense. He answers, have you not read that the one who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Not so fast. Not for any reason. Now, let me say one thing real quick before we move on. Um, divorce is incredibly tragic. Today, right now, it is always tragic. It is sometimes necessary. But that doesn't make it any less tragic. And if you are hearing this teaching, you've read these scriptures and you think, does this, like I'm in a dangerous relationship that is not physically safe for me. Am I being told I should just stay and bear? That's not what this is about. Or if you've suffered through a divorce, this is not to then double your agony and pain at that loss. To separate what has been joined together is always brutal. It's always painful. Even when necessary. The religious leaders are making light of it to trap Jesus. Because the law has become for them a weapon. So Jesus says... Let no one separate what God has joined together. Then they ask him, why did Moses give us the command to give a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her? They know the Bible. Knowing the Bible is not enough. He said to them, it's because you were so hard-hearted that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. Now I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for unchastity, marries another commits adultery. Jesus says, it's because you were so sclerocardia. It's a great word. It's because you were so sclerocardia that Moses made a way forward for you. This is actually a ton of what happens in the early part of the Bible where God keeps having to sort of make space for us to be a mess. Otherwise, we would not even be able to continue on. It's because you were so hard-hearted. The, the language there, it's because you had such a crusty heart. I love that language. Because you had such a crusted over a dehydrated heart. That first picture was of a dehydrated heart. That it was made, yeah, it's a, it's a dehydrate. it was all Actually, it was a dehydrated heart for dog food. I didn't know, but you can apparently dehydrate not human hearts, that's not allowed, but like a goat heart or something, and then dogs really like it and then it becomes like someone who reads their Bible doesn't know what it means, right? It's like giving your dog a pig ear, exactly. What the religious leaders miss, and this is at the heart of what's happening in this section from the Sermon on the Mount. The law, what we would maybe call the Torah, that set of commandments, it was meant in its inception and in its purity to liberate the people to save them. The laws were given at a time in a culture that had its own way of being. And to create a people who might worship God in faithfulness, in loyalty, and in truth, it took a certain set of rules and regulations to guide them toward wholeness and away from the death patterns that they had been used to. Like, Camille said last week that the community was fragile. And something like murder or something like infidelity could destroy this fragile community. They had been slaves for a really long time. And a lot of the laws and regulations are to teach them that they are free to worship and that they should never enslave themselves or another. The law was for their liberation, not for their captivity or their condemnation. But over time, there are different ways to understand the law. What Jesus is introducing to them is the idea, the deep truth. And if you don't hear anything else, hear this. That the law and the commandments, they set us on a path. They give a pitch or a trajectory for justice and goodness and mercy. They are never ends unto themselves. And as soon as they become ends unto themselves, they calcify. They become dead or they become deadly. For instance, and you knew I was going to talk about this today. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God. And those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Does this sound familiar? There are all kinds of ways to use scripture as a weapon. For cruelty or for oppression. Even the devil knows scripture. Jesus finds that out in the wilderness. It takes more than memorizing the language. It takes something changing in your heart. Context matters, too. Because chapter 12 of the book of Romans says, let love be genuine, hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with mutual affection. Or chapter 13, if you go just a little bit further, says, owe no one anything except to love one another Let the one who loves another, they have fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery or murder or steal or covet or all the other commandments are summed up in this word. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law so when people stand up and put the scriptures in their mouth and then use them as a way to spit acid on the whole world like that's going to bother me and it's going to bother you I actually felt convicted by Romans 13 this week because I have felt like I'm really tired of paying taxes for things like wars or things like detention camps like that's really annoying That is what Romans 13 is for. There were groups of early Christians and Jews who thought like Caesar and Rome are a mess and they were a mess. And so we should not even keep the very basic laws of taxation. And Paul says, no, like there are some rules that you need to at least try and stay with them if at all possible. But there is a law or commandment that does supersede these governing rules. Love one another is how they say it. Or, like our kids learned this week in the book of Acts, our last Bible verse, if you were at science camp, chapter 5, Peter and the apostles say to those who are accusing them, we must obey God rather than any human authority. Jesus takes the law and points it towards its good end. Culture had assumed that this disparity of power was the way things were and had to be. And so this is the governing reality. That there are those in power and there are those who owe them some kind of fealty and loyalty. And this person owes nothing to these folks. What Jesus does and then what Paul carries forward is an entirely new community. We might call it like the beloved community, where this changes. There is this leveling out that happens. And no longer is one person responsible and the other party can do whatever they want. But there is again a mutuality. Jesus speaks and says, Both of you, O fidelity. Not just the woman. And both of you, if failing, are guilty. Paul will carry this forward in an even more radical direction and says, like where there is a new creation, where Christ is present in the community, there is no more male nor female. Paul could only say that because Paul reads where Jesus is headed. And so Paul takes this configuration and radically changes it and says, this is no longer power speaking to those who are under power, but it is this reorientation to a community where all are responsible to one another. It's the reason when Paul talks about mutuality, Paul gives instructions to the head of the household. Now, to husbands, I give these commandments. But Paul doesn't stop there. Paul says, and to wives, I give these commandments. And then to children, I give these commandments. And even to those who are in bonded servitude, I give these commandments. There is no group who is outside the community of faith, but all belong. So what do we do with this? Those of you who have power have a responsibility to wield it for the flourishing of those around you. And those of you who find yourself on the underside of power and are being abused or oppressed, and if anyone is justifying that based on how God has ordained things, then you can call their bluff. Jesus is after human flourishing because God is after human flourishing because that is how things were created in the beginning. And anything that cuts against that or separates that out, we would call sin. And so this day, there is the opportunity for a new beginning where those who have had can lay down and submit. And for those who have not had and never had, that the abundance of God is on offer. That we don't have to be controlled by our hungers that are out of control. And that even when things are broken apart, God has the last word. If you don't know anything else, if you can't remember all of those laws, at least remember to love one another. Opportunity after opportunity to love one another, to see one another, to listen to one another, to be horrified by the things that are happening to one another, to weep and to have your heart break because of things that happen to those who are less fortunate, to never be the agent of that destruction. friends i have been sitting and praying about what this means for us all through camp week all through 130 kids being here they would fill this room up and i would be full of joy and then every day i would go home and i would study and i would read and my heart would break again at things that are happening around this culture in this climate to women to children But I've been reading the words that God has given us. And you have been reading and listening. And you don't have to be afraid or without hope. You can be present in these broken spaces. full of the knowledge of the truth that God has healed all that is broken through Christ. Who did not take power to wield in strength but laid it down. Did not take advantage of those who were poor or weak but lifted them up. And that would be our call. May you embrace it well. May I embrace it well. Would you pray with me? Dear God, it's a hard word. But that's because this is a really difficult climate. The world is full of shadows. So I pray today, God, for these friends and family that we would find the language together to speak love with robustness. That we would find a way to hand people back their dignity and their blessing. That we would not reduce anyone to a product or a commodity that we might consume. But that we would celebrate and enjoy one another as the gift and blessing that we are. You have made us that way, God. You have made us to be blessed. May we not hoard it, but may we share it. You've given us one another so we are not alone. Oh, and that is such good news to make us quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. All in Christ's name, amen.